The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. If you'll remain standing and turn in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. Again, we continue the Gospel of Matthew. We're in chapter 27. Uh, page 835, if you're using the Pew Bible, Matthew 27, we'll look at the last part of the chapter, verses 57 through 66. This is God's word. Let's worship him as we receive that word this morning, paying good attention to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse uh, worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Amen. That's part of the reading of God's word. Let's pray together and ask his help. The grass withers, the flower falls, but your word, O Lord, endures forever and ever. And we are so blessed, O God, again, as your people to be gathered and uniting around that blessed word. Father, we confess our great need of your help. We pray that you would come by your spirit and work in our hearts. Oh, Lord, that we might receive that true word uh, in faith. Would you come to us, we pray, and exalt before our eyes uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see his grace and his glory. Oh, Lord God, that our trust might be holy in him, our blessed Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, where we find ourselves in Matthew's gospel, we're obviously considering very, very important matters. What could be more important than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection? We are truly ascending to the very heights. Well, what about this event between his death and the resurrection? What about our Lord's burial? or entombment. I like that word entombed, as you saw from my sermon titled, The Entombed Christ. Is it important for us the fact that our Lord was buried, placed in a tomb? The Apostle Paul seemed to think that it was in 1 Corinthians 15, when he was reminding the church of the important message. He used those words uh, as of first importance. And what he wrote was that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and, verse 4, and that he was buried 
and also that he was, of course, raised from the dead. But even his burial was an important event. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we state that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead, and buried. Why is this important? Why was Jesus buried? We can make use of the the Heidelberg Catechism question 41 and answer that that question in a very simple way, a way so simple that even the small children can understand. Children, why was Jesus buried? The catechism says his burial testifies that he really died. There's question one in the outline if you're using it, children. How do we know for sure that Jesus died? Uh, there are many many answers, of course, to, to that that question. We see other clear evidence in the Bible, but we know he truly died precisely because he was buried. This is one of the answers to that question. And I'm making use of that catechism answer for my sort of sermon proposition statement this morning. Our message this morning is simply this. Christ's remarkable burial testifies to the important truth of his death, testifies to the truth of his death. I want us to note three things this morning about our Lord's burial, three descriptions, three just one word descriptions about his burial. It was an exceptional burial, it was a certain burial, and it was a secure burial. Exceptional, certain, secure. Consider first then how our Lord was given a very exceptional burial. And in some ways, this might seem like a strange fact to us. Why would he be given an exceptional burial? I mean, wasn't he counted worthless? Didn't he die as a criminal? Why not just toss his body out in the field to be left to the elements, you know, given over to be to, to, to the scavengers? That's often what happened to, to criminals in the days of Jesus. Pastor Hulse reminded us last week of that, that important biblical truth. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree while Jesus of all, Jesus became the, the cursed one. Wouldn't it be fitting that his body be there as hanging left as a shameful testimony of his cursedness? Well, actually, that Deuteronomy 21 text was for Israel a command not to leave, even an executed criminal, not to leave him hanging on a tree. He was to be buried that very day so as not to defile the land. And that's why faithful Jews were careful to bury the dead, even criminals, even strangers. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that that money which Judas returned to the chief priests and the elders, that money was used to purchase a place, a burial place for strangers, the field of blood, verses 7 and 8. The Jewish religious conviction about the, the, the importance of the body, the importance of a proper burial is probably in part why Roman magistrates would allow for this, as Pilate did in our text. Some have argued that, that this was proof, further proof of Christ's innocence, that Pilate never would have allowed for this had he known that Jesus was guilty of that of which he was convicted and, and crucified. Perhaps that's true. At any rate, his body was not thrown in a field. Children, there's question two. Not thrown in a field. What did happen was quite exceptional. In fact, it was quite exceptional, even by Jewish standards. 
What was given to Jesus was was not just a common burial place with other executed criminals. Indeed, I wonder if any crucified criminal was ever honored with this kind of burial. You know, part of the reason, of course, is there was prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Uh, Isaiah 53, 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Who was this rich man? This is question three. In the outline, uh, in the outline, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a town some 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem, went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus, and we find that his, his request was granted. And so Joseph made this provision for Jesus to be given this proper burial. In fact, that description we see in verses 59 and 60, uh, 60 there's quite impressive. His body wrapped in a clean linen shroud. He was laid in his own new tomb, which had been cut in the rock to protect from wild animals. A large stone rolled over to cover the mouth of the tomb. It's interesting. Now, Matthew makes no mention of some other important facts we, we glean from the other Gospels. Uh, uh, we know that Joseph was actually one of the religious leaders. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a, remem- a respected member of the council, we're told. But Luke is clear to tell us that he had not consented to their decision and action, their decision to condemn Jesus to death. Luke tells us that, that that Joseph was a good and righteous man. Mark tells us that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Matthew doesn't mention any of those things. And he makes no mention of what we know from God, uh, John's gospel, that, that though Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, he was a disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. It seems from John's gospel that this for Joseph, as well as for Nicodemus, was his moment of coming out of the darkness into the light in terms of making public his commitment to Jesus as a disciple. But all we're told by Matthew is that this Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man who was a disciple of Jesus. So little and yet such a beautiful thing we see here. This rich man was was willing to be identified with Jesus in, in this significant way, be shown to be a disciple of Jesus, willing to, to risk, it seems, I presume, be, you know, being at odds, becoming the enemy of his fellow members of the Sanhedrin. By God's grace, his wealth did not become sort of an insurmountable obstacle to his entrance into the kingdom or his, you know, concern to be popular among his peers. And as a kingdom disciple, I would say, a kingdom disciple, he honored, he honored our Lord with a, with an honorable and exceptional burial. And I think we can see all of this as wonder, a wonderful means that God has given us uh, as, as proof. Yes, that Jesus was truly dead, dead and buried, and proof of the of the infinite value of our Lord's suffering, an exceptional burial for a death of infinite value. The, the, the work of Jesus is tied to his person. Jesus himself is infinitely valuable. Even his body, 
We do well to remember that the Messiah was truly the God-man, the God-man and becoming a man. The Son of God had taken on a true body as well as a reasonable soul. And even though his spirit had now left him, this was still the true body of Christ, the very body which he offered up as a precious sacrifice, the very very same body, to use the language of the, the Westminster Confession about the resurrection of the body, this was the self-same body which would, be, which would soon be raised up in glory. And just think about this. Even his burial was part of his humiliation, his suffering work. Isn't that true? You know, we, we might think to ourselves, oh, really, once Christ had died, there was really nothing else in terms of his humiliation. Indeed, on the cross, did he not say, it is finished? And that, that, that's true. Indeed, when, his, when, when he died, his, his, his spirit went to be with the Father. But that does not mean that it didn't matter what happened to his body. The Bible also ascribes significance to the fact that his body was placed in the tomb, remained in the grave until his resurrection. Did he not say back in chapter 12 of this very same gospel, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So it seems that that, that fact of Jesus, his body remaining in the tomb, this was, this was the sign of Jonah. This was a great work that the Lord had done. It says in Romans chapter six, verse nine, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So while he was yet in the grave, in his body, he was yet under the dominion of death. And all of these these scriptures I'm mentioning are proof texts of what the Westminster Larger Catechism teaches when it makes it very clear that his burial was part of his humiliation. It says this, it mentions very specifically, question 50 asks, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And the answer, Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day. In fact, it goes on to to say something that might surprise us. I'm going to return to that later, but leaving that for now, what what a testimony this was then to the true humiliation that he, the one who is eternal God, eternal God, the Son, was crucified, remained under the power of death as his body was given over, given over to the control of mere Men, brothers and sisters, this was all part of our Lord's amazing, condescending grace. So yes, this was an exceptional burial indeed, because this was, this was the burial of the Christ whose sufferings were of infinite worth, an exceptional burial. And then secondly, we see that it was a certain burial. We can be certain about this. And on this point, we can note again the women. Children, this is question five in the outline. Which, which people were there seeing, uh, witnessing, or seeing where Jesus was buried? Verse 61 tells us. 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. Just one verse, but I think this is so important. Humanly speaking, we have them to thank for the certainty that we have about Christ's burial. Joseph was not not the only disciple there showing love and devotion to their Lord, even at his death. In fact, we don't know for sure that Joseph himself was there. He was a rich man. Perhaps he had his workers doing the work. I suspect that that Joseph probably was there himself. But we know for sure that the the, the present the, the women were there, and their their presence played an important role in this event. Pastor Holt showed us last week that it was the women. It was not the twelve. But it was the women who remained most faithful right there at the event of Christ's crucifixion, his death. Well, the same, it seems, was true at his burial. It's interesting, isn't it? We, we speak of the, the, the apostles being the, the eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Christ, and that's absolutely true. Those who were called to the apostolic office played such an important, unique role, and it was very important they saw these things, particularly that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. But interestingly, it seems that there was no apostle there present at his burial. Of course, it was the, 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 the Spirit inspired the apostles, and they've given us this testimony about the burial of Christ. This is the gospel of Matthew, the apostle. But by God's design, we see how the, the apostolic testimony relied on the testimony of these faithful women. It's because of their presence that we have continuity in all of these events, death, his crucifixion, death, burial, as well as what we'll see next time, their, their involvement in witnessing the resurrection. We might ask the question, did these, did these women understand that all of the purpose of God, the plan of God in all of this, is that what, what motivated Mary and Mary to be there seeing where Jesus was buried? I doubt it. I think they were just there mourning, right? They wanted properly to be able to mourn their Lord's death. They wanted to see the place where they would bring the spices and so forth. I suppose in some ways this was, this was just for them as a sort of a part of the means by which they were processing the way they were dealing with the devastatingly painful reality that their Lord, whom they loved, was now gone. Death is tragic. The loss of a loved one is a painful reality, one which some of you have experienced again, even recently. God truly understands what that's like, doesn't he? Because in the person of Jesus, God himself became a man. We think of Jesus standing there weeping at the tomb of his dear friend, Lazarus, whom he loved, who had died. And there's something about a burial, that experience of seeing our loved one laid to rest in the grave that helps us deal with the reality of the loss. The case of Jesus, of course, the, the, the tragic circumstances of a crucifixion, such a horrifying death, perhaps made it difficult to go through this process as one normally would. But here were these women doing everything they could to deal with this, making every effort. And how fitting that God would use all of this, that God would use them, the God of wisdom, the God of all comfort. He would use their presence. He would use their tears shed even at the tomb there. There's wonderful, I think, I think application here, by the way. 
and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, submit to him everything, all that you do, even your mourning, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, even your weeping, weep, do all unto the glory of God. Is there sorrow in your life? Maybe you are mourning the recent loss of a loved one or continuing to mourn at those lost in the past. Maybe you're grieving other matters. This is this world is a veil of tears and mourning is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's good for us to mourn. But the Lord calls us to be those who mourn, not in hopeless despair, but those who mourn in faith unto the Lord. We, we entrust our sorrows unto him. And I think the story of these women reminds us of this. Look how the Lord used them. Look how the Lord was with them in their sorrow as they continued following him. Look how God has used them as an important part of the means by which he brings us indeed certainty about him who is our only source of comfort in life and in death. Yes, in part, because as Heidelberg teaches us, his burial testifies that he really died. And so we can say it's true. The women were there. They saw it. You know, he didn't just come very close to dying, but then somehow recover and sneak off with his disciples. No, they saw the tomb. They saw the tomb in which his lifeless corpse wrapped in that clean linen shroud was placed. And all of this, all of this was important. It was important that he was given that exceptional, unforgettable tomb. It was important that he was laid alone in that tomb. There's question four of the outline, children. No, Jesus was not buried together with a number, you know, a bunch of other bodies. That There could be no no possible case of mistaken identity. Maybe maybe it's the wrong one. Maybe that, that corpse over there, maybe that's the body of Jesus. No, no mistaken uh, person, no case of a mistaken tomb on the third day when it would when that tomb would be found empty, there was no chance that they'd come to the wrong tomb. You know, there was certainty, and there would be there would will be more certainty, certainty about every aspect of his burial, an exceptional burial, and a certain burial. And then lastly this morning, a secure burial. So we come to the last part of our text, which only only further speaks to what an exceptional burial this was and to the certainty that we have about this event. But we see that word secure. Matthew finds that to be a particularly important word as the only gospel writer uses it. We see that three times, verses 64 and 65 and 66. Hence my sermon title, The Securely Entombed Christ. But notice you look at that that section, how the actions of these these religious leaders, certainly we can say they they stand in stark contrast to that of the disciples of Jesus, uh, Joseph and the two Marys. They're acting in love and devotion to Jesus. These ones continue. Amazingly, he's dead, and yet they continue to act in hostility. They hate Jesus. For them, it's not enough that he's dead. They want to erase his memory from the face of the earth. And notice, by the way, that they're, they're willing to, to trample all over the Sabbath commandment in order to do so. 
It's Christ's disciples who are very careful to finish their work on the Sabbath day. Sort of marvelous, isn't it, to think that even as the body of Jesus lay dead, you see his life-giving power empowering his disciples to, to, to walk in obedience to, to the commandment. They, the, the, uh, the religious leaders, by contrast, in verse 62, it says they came the next day, that is, the day after the day of preparation, that was the day of preparation, not only the preparation for the Sabbath, but this wasn't just any Sabbath. This was Passover, and that was the most important day of the, fa- of the Passover feast. This was the Passover meal. But the religious leaders, they came after that day on the Sabbath to do their wicked work on the Sabbath day. They came and they warned Pilate that something might happen. Interesting there that they... They did speak some truth because Jesus did tell his disciples that he would rise again. Somehow it seems that even the religious leaders knew something of that. But of course, in their hatred, in their blindness, it seems that it was never, didn't even occur to them that these words might be proven true. Instead, all they could think about was the the possibility of fraud and theft and rumors as disciples might come and they might steal away the body and lie and say that he rose from the dead. How marvelous it is to see how God used not only the good actions of Christ's disciples, but even the evil of these religious leaders. God used all of this to accomplish his good plan. Obviously, God had no interest in seeing False rumors, lies spread, not at all. But here again, by God's design, their actions were part of his means of proving true, rendering certain the truth about the resurrection. Probably Pilate did not give them exactly what they asked for. In verse 64, it seems that they wanted him in, in, in asking him to order the tomb to be made secure. It seems they were asking him to dispatch separate Roman soldier guards to go and specifically guard the tomb. What, uh, what Pilate did is he told them, you have guards, you have Roman soldiers who guard the temple, and you're free to take those ones, put them at the tomb, and make it very, very secure. And by the way, that's how we know. There's question uh, six in the, uh, the outline, children. How do we know? How was the tomb of Jesus made secure? Well, verse 66 tells us, they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So guards posted, the, 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 uh, the, the stone was sealed, sealed with a, there would be a, a kind of a moldable substance like clay, and it would be even stamped with the imperial seal and attached to the stone with a rope. If you were foolish enough to think that you could to go and try to sneak by the guards, the Roman soldiers, and then you were to break that seal, that was a serious crime. You were, you, you, you were risking coming under the, facing the wrath of even the emperor. So humanly speaking, we can say that that tomb was secure. There's, there's question seven in the outline, children. The answer is no, it was not possible that the, that, that Jesus was not truly risen from the dead, but that his bodies had simply, his disciples had simply stolen away his body. Ironically, their great efforts proved false, the very lie which they would seek later to propagate. But at this point, I think, I think here, 
uh, as they were carrying out this wicked act. I think in the minds of the enemies of Christ, Jesus was finished. He was dead and gone. And in their mind, even his memory was to be dead, gone, contained forever in that tomb. I was thinking about this even this morning and thinking, did they think maybe it would be, you know, like Lazarus? He'd be raised from the dead, but they'd keep him sealed in there so that he'd die of starvation or, you know, oxygen deprivation. I don't know what was going on. But isn't it marvelous to see that, that, that God would use their efforts to set the stage for the great work that God himself would do. I think it's described so well in the words of one commentator, R.T. France, who wrote this. They held all the cards of earthly power, including access to the Roman governor. But despite all their efforts, they could not contain the Son of God. They will, they will be last seen arranging a lying cover-up story. But by then, Jerusalem will have become irrelevant to Matthew's story, and the risen Jesus will be back in Galilee, commissioning his restored followers to begin a triumphant mission to all nations, which will last to the end of time. What a marvelous thought. I think that here they, they, they concoct this lie. Uh, it's, it's the disciples who will go forth proclaiming the truth, and that truth goes to the ends of the earth. And we know that that gospel message is true. We can say as surely as the body of Christ was secure, safe, and secure in that tomb, God has preserved the gospel message true, safe, and secure. And that's good news. Good news for all who believe that message. Good news for all who put their trust in him. I hope that's true of everyone sitting here listening to this message this morning. Friends, if you've never come to him, if you've never committed your life to him, if you're not living as his disciple, then this morning you yet stand with the enemies of Christ who oppose him in this text. If that's uh, you this morning, we would plead with you with the warning. You're on a path to hell. And I mentioned that word hell for a specific reason. The, the, the good news, of course, of the gospel is that, that Jesus suffered hell for you if you put your trust in him, if you follow him. Suffered hell. You know, when we, we recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess not only that he was buried, but also that he descended into hell. What does that mean? Obviously, it doesn't mean that Jesus literally went to a place, to, to the place hell. The Heidelberg 44 instructs us well on this when it says this, why does the creed add he descended into hell? And the answer there is to assure me during attacks of deepest dread and temptation that Christ my Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. We, we rightly believe that that was in all of Christ's sufferings. He suffered the hell that we deserved. But Westminster, should, taken together with Heidelberg on this, instructs us very well in a way that's that's important. Uh, earlier, I, I left off the last part of the answer to question 50 of the larger catechism. 
It asks, wherein consisted Christ's humiliation after his death? And here's the answer. Christ's humiliation after his death consisted in his being buried and continuing in the state of the dead and under the power of death till the third day, which hath, listen to this, which hath otherwise been expressed or hath been otherwise expressed in these words, he descended into hell. He descended into hell. It's tough to wrap our brains around around that, but his burial reminds us of the hell that he suffered. There's more, perhaps more theology there than we want to go into this morning. I'm simply going to end by saying this. Dear Christian, Christ suffered hell in your place, and his burial is part of that. His burial is part of that. When you think on him, when you think on your crucified Savior being laid in that tomb, sealed in that tomb, secure, let that be a reminder for you that you are safe, you are secure only in him. If your trust is in him, if there's any here this morning who have never trusted in him, we would plead with you, flee the wrath of God, flee to Christ, run into the arms of the Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and you will be safe. You will be secure. You will be secure in his love, his protection, his power, the very power by which that securely enclosed tomb would be burst open in the resurrection. That power is at work preserving us in Christ, keeping us safe, keeping us secure. Aren't we told uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, that, that we've been sealed, sealed by the Holy Spirit, sealed even unto the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. That's wonderful news. In Christ, you are safe, you are secure, you are entombed in him forever and ever. Yes, delivered from hell, freed from sin's guilt, freed from sin's power, freed by Christ to go and live as his disciple. Are you rich like Joseph of Arimathea? Well, surrender your wealth to Christ, right? Use your riches to serve the Lord Jesus as Joseph did. Are you sorrowful this morning like the the two Marys were sorrowful while surrender to Christ, even your tears, serve him even in your sorrow as these ones did. Give yourself completely to him who gave himself completely for you in love and devotion to your Savior. Live as his faithful disciples. Let's pray together. Indeed, help us, gracious and loving Father, so to do uh, even this morning. Father, we confess our need of your help, your grace that we might do so. We thank you, Lord God, for the marvelous way in which your grace abounded even in the lives of, of Joseph and these women. Even before the resurrection, how much more, oh God, does that grace abound to us this morning? Please come to us, we pray then. Fill us with your Spirit and your word, and enable us to walk before you in true love and true devotion as faithful disciples of our risen Savior, the one who reigns forever and ever. And in whose name we do pray. Amen.